I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Hello there, macro data refiners. You're just in time for the morning announcements. This is Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Why are you standing weird? Stand normal. I'm your host, Alan Est. Please keep in mind, Severed is a deep dive, comprehensive rewatch podcast. We could reference anything from the first season of Severance. This is an episode-by-episode rewatch, but there are tons of spoilers. By now, you should already know this information, and you probably feel like you want to throw your mug at me. We are deep in the severed weeds this week, refiners. Petey is freaking in Mark's basement until he gets the munchies. Helly is still fighting like hell to get off the severed floor, and Irv thinks a trip to the wing of perpetuity might be the thing to cement Helly's love for cure. Sure, going to the museum will change your mind. The excursion is an inventive device for Lumen background exposition. It also makes for a fun field trip. Grab your Egan Bingo cards, refiners, and keep an eye out for O&D. It's time to open the file called In Perpetuity. A note about this one, refiners, it's more than 90 minutes long. This is how it came down from upstairs, so someone has faith you can handle it. In Perpetuity features a new name on the writer's line, Andrew Colville, along with series creator Dan Erickson and Anna Oyang Munch, staff writer. This one was directed by Ben Stiller, his third in a row. It was first released by Apple TV Plus on February 25th of 2022. This is where they started releasing episodes weekly on Fridays. Weekends became episode watch and rewatch time, and Monday mornings at the office became filled with severance discussions. This episode picks up right where Half Loop left off. Petey is in Mark's basement. We're finding they may not have all the bugs worked out on that reintegration procedure. Petey, you okay? Petey had fallen in the bathroom at the end of the last episode. Petey says he just slipped. We see Petey wearing a good-looking red and blue striped robe. Heavy, thick stripes of red next to heavy strips of blue. Mark tells him the robe has never been worn. It was a gift from his brother-in-law. Okay, this has to be another Baltic handloom creation from Rickon. Mark apologizes for it being weird. He has pillows. He asks Petey if he needs anything else. Yeah, I want you to stop shitting on this awesome robe. Well, you can keep it. I will. Petey's worried as to whether anyone can see through the transoms. Petey would be freaking to know how much Cobell, or Selvig, is watching from across the way. But she's on the other side. Mark tells him everything is locked upstairs, although we'll discover this episode locking things doesn't mean much. Anybody live in that unit next door? Mark says it's empty. He says the area really hasn't filled up all that much. This might be a reference to some kind of slowdown in the severance program or preparation for a ramping up. There are political battles raging over the adoption of severance. We know from last time there's a motion on the ballot about severance in this state whatever state this might be with the abbreviation P.E., it's possible Lumen is counting on the passage of pro-severance laws in order to ramp up the severed workforce. Petey is steadying himself on the sink when suddenly Irv walks in behind him. 
Huh? He He's surrounded by green lumen tile. This is the bathroom on the severed floor. Petey, now clean-shaven, wearing his blue ID badge and in a work suit, comes out of the bathroom. There's joshing, ribbing, and general shop talk about a mixer. The camera slides sideways behind Mark, and suddenly Petey is standing there on the severed floor in Rickon's blue and red robe. His stubble is back. Petey's hallucination seems to reconnect with reality when he's standing in the basement in front of Mark. You okay? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yul Vasquez, who played Petey, said he was really at the mercy of Ben Stiller's vision when it came to these disoriented reintegration sickness scenes. The various shots needed to create just this one vision from the previous segment were shot over several months and at very different times. Yule said Ben would tell him, turn this way or look like you're in pain. Vasquez never had any idea how the scenes would look when cut together. He was putting his trust in his director to make it all look good. Petey says with this sickness, he gets disoriented. He claims it's temporary, but since he's the first, how would anyone know? Mark heard Petey say a name during his hallucination. What's Sunset Park? I don't know. Petey slowly walks to the basement couch as Mark starts to climb the steps. The music swells ominously, and we're launched into the severance theme. Permission to hit skip, refiners. I'll see you on the other side. Coming out of the credit sequence, we're looking from inside a refrigerator at Mrs. Selvig's face, who's peering in the open door. Several half-eaten items are wrapped in tinfoil. She grabs the milk, cut to the kitchen cabinets and stove. Mrs. S. is not much of a housekeeper. The kitchen is trashed from the chamomile cookie making. She pours a glass of milk, then picks up a pan stacked with cookies and walks slowly into the dining room. As she sits, what looks like a needle point is hanging on the wall, bearing the delightful adage, we must be cut to heal. Selvig looks pained as she sits, her hair is once again in pigtails. She's looking out the window. Selvig is intercut with Petey, who's trying to explain this sensation of reintegration. It's like having two different lives suddenly stitched together. But the relativity's fucked. The memories from Lumen don't fit neatly into his overall timeline. He says his first day at Lumen seems as far back as his fifth birthday in the overall timeline of his life. The birth of the Innie is a fairly recent event, but when you put the two sets of memories back together, it sounds like both births become distant memories to the reintegrated patient. And with two pasts, it blurs the present too, but they said it would get better. And Mark asked the question that jumped into everyone's mind. Who's they? Petey doesn't give anything as direct as names. He says they is a group of people who see severance as a blight on mankind. And they're going to do something about it. Petey has a laugh when Mark asks if it's the whole mind collective, those kids he had the dust up with last night. Petey says these folks are more serious. Mark says he doesn't want to unsever. I don't want you to unsever because that's going to work. Reintegration. All right, well, whatever. Mark doesn't care what you call it. He's a fan of being severed for eight hours a day, and he doesn't want to do anything to mess it up. He says it helps him. Okay. What if the cost of that help is that you're murdering people eight hours a day and you don't even know it? This is the same lack of moral determination argument being made by the WMC. Mark gets a concerned look on his face. He wants to know if he is murdering people. 
Petey talks past the question. I found a department, one they don't tell us about, one where you don't get to leave. Mark comments, really, figuratively, don't none of them get to leave? Petey says, no, this is different. These people physically do not get to leave the severed floor. As in, they're down there right now. This raises the question, why? Why would they need to keep people down there 24-7 if they are only using them eight hours at a time? Ms. Casey will be telling us how she's put to sleep and then awakened. Rather than provide dorms and facilities for people living on the severed floor, why not send them away for 16 hours a day and let them take care of their own food and sleeping arrangements? Also, if you never leave the severed floor, what's the point of being severed? There are a few theories floating around. The most popular is they're experimenting on these people in their sleep. Or they're switching these people to another severed existence without their knowledge. What they think is sleep is actually working somewhere else. Or Lumen is not 100% confident in the performance of the severed chip. Letting severed employees out in the world might be somewhat dangerous. We've seen what a tight rein Cobell keeps on Mark when he's outside of work. So even though it may not make a lot of sense to us now, Petey's sure there are people down there who never come up. What, like chained up? Or? Petey gets a haunted look on his face. He shushes Mark. He's having a flashback. He's worried the monitors are bugged. Petey, we're not at Lumen. Petey mentions June. The memory seems painful. June, it turns out, is Petey's daughter. Greatest kid on earth and a hell of a guitar player. Kind of fun, Yul Vasquez is actually an accomplished guitar player who played for two different bands before getting into acting. Of course his daughter would be one too. How happy are you that you asked me to stay here? We cut to a point of view shot from Mrs. Selvig's window. She can see Mark having a seat in his living room. It looks like he's preparing to drink himself into another coma in front of the TV. Selvig munches a chamomile cookie and seems genuinely concerned about his plight. Oh, Mark. Are you all right? We cut to a shot looking over Mark's shoulder at his TV. A talking head news shows on. A split screen shows a woman with tight curly hair on the left talking to an intense looking man on the right. The woman on the left is Natalie. She's a major part of the publicity department at Lumen. She also seems to literally have the ear of the board. We're going to meet Natalie face-to-face -face a little later in the episode. I'll introduce you to the person playing Natalie then. For now, we need to dial in on this conversation. The intense guy is saying something about a woman who wound up pregnant less than a month after her company went severed. It sounds like it's not just Lumen offering the severance procedure to employees. Lumen seems to have developed the technology, but they also seem to be licensing it out. Or maybe other companies are developing their own version of the severance chip as competition to the Lumen chip. Kind of like the iPhone versus Android. Both do about the same thing, but different manufacturers and slightly different ways of doing things. The news network Mark is watching is GNC. There's a live banner and a lower third saying four states are now planning to propose anti-severance legislation. The argument seems to be about choice, the choice to sever. Yes, you could easily swap out a real-world choice argument in this debate, and you'd get about the same results. Natalie's good. She does not get flustered, and she's turning this guy's argument back on him. 
He's even got the lingo wrong, which is killing his credibility. How could she have that conversation when her worky was the one okay, involved first in the conception? Of all, Nat slams him for his condescending verbiage. He also tries to use the word inzy. To be a spokesperson against severance, this guy's very uninformed. He tells Natalie she doesn't want to engage in a real conversation because it would reveal she's involved in something immoral. What's immoral is taking away... Mark grabs the remote and clicks away. The argument seems to be making his head hurt. We can see Mark's lonely fish in the background. The blue one and the red one seem to be coming very close to each other. He channel surfs a bit, but seems to be fading. There's a cut and the light is different. The audio from the TV is talking about the day's weather. They even mention clouds dissipating somewhere over the Gans area. Mark blearily comes to. He passed out in front of the TV for the night again. The forecast is calling for a rare sunny day for the folks around Kier, but the cold's not going to be letting up anytime soon. Roads will remain icy throughout the week. There's a long shot of the subdivision. It's a high overhead angle with the wood stretching out behind. It really reveals how isolated this lumen housing is in Kier. Consider the fact this subdivision is partially empty and it feels even more isolated. There's a cut to the darkened stairs leading down to Mark's basement. The door opens and Mark appears in his work suit. He's shaved and looking a little more alive than when he came to on the couch. Petey. Wake up, Petey. Petey? There's a note of concern in Mark's voice. It takes Petey a long time to move. Hey. It's morning. You're in my basement. Mark tells Petey he's headed for work. Petey can stay here in the basement. Mark seems to have been giving a lot of thought to this idea of reintegrating. He doesn't want to do it. Petey says it's okay, but Mark feels like he needs to explain. I lost my wife a couple years ago in a car accident. This is, uh, it's helping me. Petey says he's sorry. He tells Mark about seeing any Mark coming to work with red eyes. This would explain it. He said they made the joke Mark had an elevator allergy. Even though Mark says being severed is helping, Petey thinks it's more of a band-aid. You carry the hurt with you. You feel it down there, too. You just don't know what it is. Mark tells Petey to grab whatever he wants from the fridge. I should be back around six. The cut to outside Mark's townhouse reveals the clouds may be moving out. It still looks to be very cold. As Mark heads to his car, Mrs. Selvig sticks her head out of her front door. She's armed with a hairdryer. Oh, Mark, I'm sorry for the racket. I'm just de-icing my stoop. Mark tells her thanks again for the cookies. By the way, refiners, it's not recommended you use a hairdryer to melt ice on a porch or sidewalk unless you have really good drainage. Usually, melting a patch of ice with a hairdryer means you're creating a larger, smoother, and more dangerous patch of ice after what you melted refreezes. As Mark drives away, Mrs. S gives him a cold look. The hairdryer was just a ruse to get outside to speak with Mark before he left. There's a cut to a striking long shot of the Bell Labs complex. The whole scene is covered with freshly fallen snow. Cut to a close-up of the tray in Mark's locker. He's swapping out his ID. When he closes the locker, we get a better look at those graphics on the front. It's the Lumen water droplet with a number next to it. Mark closes the locker for number 14. 15 and 16 are visible to the right. 
Have we even seen a total of 16 people anywhere on the severed floor? We learned the security guy's name is Judd. Scout, how you doing? I'm Judd. Judd pulls out the hand wand and gives Mark a scan before he gets on the elevator. Judd is being played by American actor Mark Kenneth Schmaltz. Mark started his acting career in 1989 as a security guard. He was Harris, the security officer in the comedy Weekend at Bernie's. Since then, Mark has amassed 24 acting credits. Mark may have been typecast over the years. He was a guard on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. He's also appeared as guard, museum guard, and desk sergeant. He did break out of the guard role with appearances as a judge, a school principal, and a hypnotist. Judd appears four times in this season of Severance. Mark gives Judd a second look as the elevator door closes. Cut to the severed floor, Mark is retrieving his blue sheet of duties from the message center. This morning, there's also a green envelope paperclip to the blue sheet. It contains four prints of the new MDR group photo. Mark doesn't seem to have come down first this morning. Helly passes by him already at work. The clock in the background says 9.20. I did a thing. I deleted the scary numbers. She looks very proud of herself. Helly is in a neutral white blouse this morning, which separates her red hair from a blue skirt. Mark wants to know when this number-refining thing happened. Yesterday. You were gone. I was? This illustrates an odd facet of any life. When the elevator door opens, innies think it's the next day. They don't actually know. It could be a couple of days or even weeks later without someone telling them like Kelly just did they would have no idea how much time had passed since they were last conscious welcome back boss dylan is also already there he wanders into the cubicle area carrying a cup of coffee irving seems to be arriving although irving has no love for dylan he can't pass up an opportunity to needle mark oh yeah Dylan took over training in your stead to great success. Irv also mentions Mark is looking trim. He wonders if Mark might have had a bout of food poisoning. Dylan and Irv are both happy to see the new photos are in. Helly tells Mark they might not be using those photos for long. I put in my resignation request. She is beaming. Mark looks concerned, but Helly says it's a good thing. It means you won't get sent to the break room anymore. This is before Helly has any first-hand knowledge about the break room. Those who have experienced the break room do not mention it so casually. Mark is about to comment or at least ask how Helly would know about the break room when everybody's favorite babysitter arrives. Hello, refiners. Hello, Mr. Milchik. Milchik informs Mark just how shattered his Audi was to have not been in yesterday. Mark has another new duty he did not perform on Monday. But now that you're here... Care to read your first morning announcements as department head? Mark says it will be a lot easier to read the announcements since he won't be in the audience. Mark used to find it funny to interrupt Petey's announcements with gas having. So maybe the word fart has been filtered out of the innies vocabulary, or maybe Irv just finds it too vulgar to say. Gas having sounds somewhat Victorian. Mark stands away from the group. Okay, quiet down all. I'm Mark, your new announcements person. Milchik is snapping more pics with his film camera as Mark begins. The crossovers with elementary school are hilarious. Why are you standing weird? Stand normal. You'd never hear that in a business meeting. You'd definitely hear it in first grade. Mark says he's standing great. 
Helly seems to be enjoying his awkwardness. She piles on. Are you uncomfortable? We could all look away. This is happy Helly. She thinks she's a short timer, looking forward to her reprieve from the severed floor. She can crack a few jokes because she is soon to be out of here. Or so she thinks. The announcements are a mix of mundane office, like garbage in the recycling, and flat-out hilarious. Oh, as a reminder, post-it notes are not to be put on faces. They clog your Audi's pores. Just how many post-it notes are we talking here? Enough to clog pores seems like a lot. That one's about me. I do this beloved character, Sticky Head. The greatest tragedy of the first season is we do not get to meet Sticky Head. Uh, Something to hope for in season two, I guess. The announcements seem to be nothing more than a list of Irv's grievances against Dylan. Also, please refrain from boasting about previously earned waffle parties. Feeling attacked? Mark pauses at the last item. He looks hesitantly over to Milchik. I've never seen a resignation request get such a quick turnaround. Helly is psyched. She jumps up, ready for the big announcement. Lastly, Helly's resignation request... uh, was denied. Helly is crushed. You know, that can't be right. My Audi wouldn't do that. Mark tries to be consoling. He's about to quote something Petey used to say when Helly runs away from the cubicle cluster. As she heads to the bathroom, Milchik pulls out his phone slash walkie-talkie. He also leaves the refiner's area. As Helly tries to deal with this latest setback, let's take a moment to consider... A severed life from the perspective of the Audi. The Audi gets all the perks. The Audi gets paid for the work the Innie is doing. The Audi gets to go to a restaurant for dinner, go on dates, play actual sports. They get to watch TV for relaxation. The only thing the Audi has to consistently do each workday is show up at the severed elevator at the right time. Once there, they switch off their Audi brain. The Audi doesn't have to experience anything until the best time of the day, quitting time. The Audi goes home to a loving family, hobbies, outside interests, and they get to enjoy it all without the drudgery of actually being present for work each day. What's not to love from the standpoint of the Audi? Of course they would never want to quit a cush gig like being a severed worker. Even knowing their any self isn't happy won't usually change an Audi's mind. Sure, the any isn't happy. They're at work. Who's happy when they're at work? The Audi feels like the any can suck it up. What's the big deal? The Audi figures if they weren't severed, they'd still be suffering through eight hours of work each day. The Audi just doesn't understand the relentless existence of the any. There's a cut away from the severed floor to the street outside of Mark's townhouse. A Range Rover is pulling up. Rickon and Devon are in the car. Rickon is driving. Oh, this is so fun. Rickon has a wrapped copy of his new book, The U-U-R. It's in a brown paper wrapper. They're delivering it as a present. Shall I, you know tiptoe up and sneak to the door? Rickon is a goof. How on earth did Devin wind up with this guy? He's at work, baby. It doesn't matter. She's wanting to get this over with. Rickon wants to argue. How do you know? 
Because his car's not here. Can we please move this along? No surprise, the pregnant lady has to pee. Watching Rickon put the package on the porch makes you wonder how he survived this long. He can't decide whether he should place it against the door or the wall without Devin's help. Michael Chernis is playing this outrageously absurd character so believably, you just want to slap him. Oh, he's going to be so excited. Yeah. I hope he comes home early. He's not going to. As the Range Rover pulls away, Selvig's door opens. She crosses the snow-covered yard to Mark's front porch. A shot of Petey has slipped in here. He's sitting down in Mark's basement working on his latest version of the severed floor map. There's a close-up of Selvig's hand taking the package from Mark's front stoop. Cut back to Petey. As he's working on the map, he sees one of the cubicle walls in front of him. Suddenly, he's sitting across from Mark on the severed floor. His chip is malfunctioning again. He has a great exchange with any Mark. You get the sense of their very relaxed camaraderie and the oddball humor they shared. Hey, what's that, Sudoku? It's nothing. What were you drawing? You getting back to work in Cuba's form. After the hallucination, Petey is left disoriented on the couch. When he jumps back, his flip phone skitters along the basement floor. Petey hears keys upstairs. This is one of those downsides you don't hear about when you live in company-subsidized housing. The neighbors can stop by whenever they want. Mrs. Selvig has a key to Mark's place, and she's letting herself in. Oh, fuck. As she's walking through the rooms of Mark's townhome, you can clearly see this is Cobell, not Selvig. Patricia Arquette is brilliant when it comes to slipping back and forth between the two characters. This is our first solid evidence Cobell's not severed. She's a spy watching Mark's every move while playing this character of Selvig. Cobell pauses. She senses something. We see a close-up of her boot on the steps heading down to the basement. She doesn't turn on the basement lights, instead relying on ambient light from the window. Petey had the presence of mind to stash himself away somewhere. The couch is empty with no sign of anyone having slept on it. Cobell notices the crate of Gemma's craft still sitting out after Mark retrieved the light bulbs. She finds the candle, the red and green one Mark was also looking at. According to the closed captioning, she says no as she's sniffing the candle. She then puts it in the pocket of her coat. Her cell phone buzzes. The call is from Milchek. This is most likely the call he made as Helly was running for the bathroom. Cobell wanders out of the room with the couch into the bathroom where there's a window. We see Petey peek out from behind a stack of stuff. Cobell in the doorway of the bathroom stirs a severed memory of Cobell in her office. The sight of Cobell causes Petey to freak. He jumps up from his hiding place, shrugs off the blanket he was hiding under, and bolts for the stairs. Cobell is still on her call. Petey stealthily takes the steps two at a time. The camera swings to Cobell, and we're sure this call is about Helly. Did you give her directed praise? Cobell tells Milchik she'll be right there. We cut to Cobell's driveway, which reminds me of a topic I haven't mentioned yet but want to address now. Mark is being given a choice by Petey. He can either learn the truth about what he's doing down on the severed floor or he can continue to work in severed bliss, never knowing what he's really doing. This is called the red pill, blue pill choice, introduced by the incredible 1999 movie The Matrix. In The Matrix, the character of Morpheus offers the Neo character a choice 
of two pills, a red one and a blue one. Choosing the red pill will unlock the truth of his existence, and Neo will know what's really going on with the Matrix. If instead he chooses the blue pill, he will wind up back in his bed blissfully ignorant of the truth of reality. Neo, of course, takes the red pill or there wouldn't have been a movie. It was not lost on a lot of people that Petey's letter, the birthday card with the offer to know the truth, came in a fully red envelope. When Mark went to Half Loop Road, he'd chosen red. In the movie, when talking about the red pill, Morpheus says by choosing it, You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. He's referencing the classic tale of Alice in Wonderland. Alice began her adventures by chasing a white rabbit down a hole. I tell you all of these things just to point out this amazing fact. Cobell drives a white Volkswagen rabbit. I love that. And since the last time the Volkswagen rabbit was built was in the 1980s, I'm sure this is very intentional. In the bushes beside Mark's place, Petey is freaking. He got out of the basement, but didn't go far. After Cabell drives away in her white rabbit, he comes around to the porch. Suddenly, his present blurs, and he's back in the hallways of the severed floor. He's carrying his version of the floor map on yellow notebook paper. His vision stutters back and forth between realities. Suddenly, there's a cut to the Wirt Street suspension bridge, the blue one that leads to work. In the distance, in the center of the lane, is Petey, strutting along in the cold, wearing nothing but his red and blue bathrobe. Down on the severed floor, Helly is still in the bathroom. Hey, Helly? Go away. Are you okay? I'm fine. Mark is concerned because Helly has been in there for 45 minutes. He's considering his next move. Our view cuts to inside the bathroom behind Helly. She's standing at the sink doing something we can't see. They might be hinting she's trying to slit her wrists. Mark tells her he's coming in. She says, no. Get ready. Do the things you need to do because I'm coming in. He gives her plenty of warning. Okay, here I come. And bursts on in. He understands immediately what she's up to. Writing the note directly on your skin. Uh, well, unfortunately, the detectors can pick up lettering anywhere. Helly is defiant. She holds out her arms. Does this look like lettering to you? Uh, yeah, it is kind of obvious. Helly puts her forearms together. Lined up just right, they create the phrase, let me out. Remember the fold-ins they used to do on the back cover of Mad Magazine? It looked a little like one of those when she put her arms together. When you think about it, it is pretty amazing she was able to do that by herself in a mirror. Huh, not bad. Mark's disappointed. He thought she was starting to be okay with all of this. What, because I did the numbers thing? Mark says some people do find joy in that. It literally causes fear. Well, that's just one subset of numbers. The others are more comforting. Kelly cuts him off, yelling, she does not want to be here. A quick aside about those comforting numbers. I don't think any of the numbers are really all that comforting. Mark kept saying the numbers Helly refined were CAT1. The first abbreviation to pop up out of the bins is woe. Woe means great sorrow or distress. Certainly not enjoyable, but not really something to cause fear. So maybe woe is CAT4. 
At the other end of the list is malice. Malice is the intention or desire to do evil. So I'm guessing numbers full of malice would be pretty scary, and they might be the Category 1 numbers. As for comforting numbers, frolic is maybe the only potentially comforting number group. The other one, dread, sounds like it would be the worst of all, and maybe dread is actually Cat 1. They were scary. The numbers were scary. Helly has zero respect for Mark's authority. She even says he has a pathetic boss voice. Mark tells her she has five minutes to scrub her arms. When Helly shrugs and says, or what, Mark practically hisses at her with a weird new detail. You want Grainer to use the bad soap? The term bad soap makes Helly chuckle. It gives me the creeps, but I might have a bit more respect for Grainer than Helly does. We're not sure if Mark's only heard about the bad soap or if he's actually experienced it. Based on his urgency and the fear in his eyes, I'd say he's experienced the bad soap. There's bad soap. Around Lumen, soap has a long history. No surprise, soap is most likely more than just soap. Details on the Lumen soap theories coming in later episodes. There's bad soap. In true Dwight ambushes Michael style, Irv is waiting for Mark right outside the bathroom door. Busy buddy Irv was listening in on the whole exchange. Irv is a zealot, a true disciple of Kier. He tells Mark Dylan spent all yesterday filling Helly's head with information about incentives. That's not why we're here. Irving thinks Helly needs a deeper meaning in order to form a connection to this place. I think Irv is wrong about Helly, but I love this suggestion about visiting the perpetuity wing. I say let's go. When Mark hears Perpetuity Wing, he hesitates. She can read about all that stuff in the handbook. You know it's different to be there. He thinks a trip like that is a little premature. It's only her fourth day, and as he says, that place is a lot. Correct. That place is everything. Cut to Cobell arriving at her office where Milchik is waiting. The time on the clock in the outer office is 10.28. She reports there was a package on Mark's front stoop. She hands it to Milchik and tells him to open it. Milchik makes short work of Rickon's fancy wrapping. We get our first look at the latest work from Dr. Rickon Laszlo Hale, Ph.D. This is The You You Are, a spiritual biography of you. Rickon is pictured on the cover with a sunburst halo behind him. There's a very Dianetics Tony Robbins vibe to the whole thing, even down to the font they used. Rickon may even be going for a bit of a Christ-like pose in his red, most likely hand-loomed sweater. In the small text above the title, the promo line says, from the author of My Own Petard and Life of an American Gadfly. The UUR does have an entry on Goodreads.com. Alas, it is only a placeholder waiting for an actual book. The Goodreads blurb is pretty hilariously unhinged. You really should go check it out. Is there an actual book? Not quite, but maybe. According to Dan Erickson, he wanted to make sure they had at least a few pages of the real book for the actors to flip through. He didn't want somebody like me to freeze frame a screen and find gibberish or the text of another book. So Dan says he has actually written about 50 pages of The You You Are. Ben Stiller says he has read these pages and he thinks Dan really should finish it. 
Another fun fact about Dan's version of the UUR, he said he felt like he was writing it to Adam Scott, since Mark is the character who winds up spending the most time reading it. Erickson also said once they cast Michael Chernus as Rickon, it was easier for him to write. With Chernus in place, he said he could then picture an actual person as Rickon writing the book. Is this the brother-in-law? Rickon, it's fifth book. Milchik, the busiest guy at Lumen, decides to take a reading break. Chapter 12, on learning to be emotionally nude in front of my wife. Cobell wants him to check it for messages, which would mean he's probably going to have to read it, right? Just as Milchik is about to settle in with the insanity of Dr. Hale, Mark comes into the office. This is any Mark, so he wouldn't recognize Rickon. Still, Milchik slams the book face down on his desk. Mark asks if Cobell has a moment. Milchik blocks him with bureaucratic red tape. Did you fill out an official request for supervisory interaction? These little details remind me so much of the classic Terry Gilliam film, Brazil. There is no more weirdly dystopian a future than the one you'll find in 1985's Brazil. Every moment is controlled by an incredibly top-heavy bureaucracy. You have to fill out a form for everything. Cobell waves off the paperwork and says Mark can come in. Cobell is hard. You can see Mark's nervousness in front of her. Mark says Irving thought they should take Helly to the perpetuity wing. Well, it's a good thing I made Irving department chief. Sorry. Mark corrects himself. There is, of course, more paperwork involved. And have you filled out a common space reservation slip? He hasn't. Cobell looks disappointed. Mark is frustrated. He says... Things haven't been the same since Petey left. It was Petey who set the tone of the office. Cobell isn't impressed. She says Petey was no big deal. If he was, he'd still be here. Mark should really let this go. He has no idea what a huge problem Petey has been causing for Cobell. He questions her. What does that mean? You don't talk back to Cobell. She very quietly says, Are you going to make me throw my mug at you? It, what now? Mark stammers, not sure why she'd do something like that. Then, as suddenly and as viciously as she yelled at him after the botched interview, Cobell grabs the coffee mug on her desk and whips it at Mark hard. He ducks, shocked. Get MDR to its numbers. Okay. Cobell is marking up some papers on her desk as Mark starts for the door. What I just did was something I knew that you could handle and grow from. It was very painful for me. I hope that you'll let it help you. This is what's called trying to cover for your temper tantrum. As Mark leaves, he asks a simple question. Open or closed? Cobell keeps writing, then cryptically says... Both. So what, Schrodinger's door? Mark compromises by leaving the door very wide open. There's a cut to Dylan at his workstation. He's checking out his embarrassingly good-looking delts. My Audi does muscle shows for sure. Irv thinks if Dylan were so good at these muscle shows, he wouldn't have to work here. Somehow in Irv's version of things, muscle shows are income generators. Dylan agrees to a point. I'm sorry, do you know how much muscle shows pay? No, none of us can know that. Herb speculates it's a tiered system. Muscles somehow pay off at gold, silver, and bronze levels. Dylan thinks muscle shows pay piecemeal, per muscle. He starts to list possible muscle rates. Best delt, 30 bucks. Best ab, 20 bucks. If you listen to kids on a playground talking about a subject that's way beyond their knowledge... 
you get this same level of wild speculation along with incredible levels of smug self-assuredness. As Irv and Dylan are having their inane muscle show rate card conversation, Helly is busy creating a message capsule. She's written, I don't want to work here anymore on a Lumen brand post-it note. She then rolled the post-it note into a tiny scroll and jammed it into the lid of a Sharpie, possibly the same Sharpie she used to write on her arms. She breaks the clip off the cap and seals the open end with tape. The a la carte muscle conversation continues across the way. Biceps are a little flashier, 75 bucks. I would think lats carry a high value. They're considered very attractive in muscle-building circles. Hallie heads towards the kitchenette with purpose. She fills a Lumen-logoed water glass. Helly pauses and looks at the plastic capsule for a hard second before jamming it in her mouth. Mark arrives just before she washes it down. Thirsty? Helly turns, staying cool. She's still got the capsule in her mouth, so she can't speak. Hey, uh, just in case you find this relevant for some reason, the code detectors can read messages hidden inside the body as well. There is nothing new under the fluorescent lights of the severed floor. It sounds like this has been tried before, and according to Mark, it's Milchik's job to extract the message. Mark says to be honest when he asks how long ago you ingested it. It's easier for you both if he knows which end to start from. Yuck. For even more yuck, Mark holds his hand under Helly's chin. She pauses for a long moment, staring him down. It doesn't work. She finally opens her mouth and spits out the pen cap capsule. It's pretty gooey, and I think there may have been a few takes where either one or both of them cracked up. Another good try, though. As Mark is exiting the kitchenette, he tells Helly to go shut down her workstation. We're taking a trip. We cut to one of the many Lumen hallways. Irv is in his element, leading the group and talking about the history of the company. All eight CEOs have been of the Egan lineage, lying dating back to the founder. Irv is carrying what must be his handbook in a blue cloth tote. No doubt this is the current tote design from O&D. We're still waiting on that new one Bert mentioned. Herb says he's written a poem to help him remember all the names of the CEOs. Thankfully, he doesn't recite it. He admits it does fall outside of corporate canon. As Herb is droning on about his poem, we see Dylan trying to get Mark and Helly's attention. Dylan hands each of them a blue sheet of paper. Egan Bingo. We get a quick look at the sheet. At the top, it says Egan Bingo. That's how you don't die of boredom in the perpetuity way. Below the title is a 4x4 grid, 16 total spaces, containing handwritten cliched items you will either hear or see in the wing of perpetuity. Hey, what the hell is Egan Bingo? After several screen grabs, I've been able to identify the entire grid. You ready? Starting in the upper left-hand corner, row one, cell one, wax tears. Cell two, monocle. Cell three is monogrammed pen with the word pen for some reason in all caps. It looks more like an abbreviation. The fourth cell in the first row is picture of child with rickets. Rickets is a condition found in children caused by lack of vitamin D. Vitamin D promotes absorption of calcium and phosphorus. Without vitamin D, a child's bones are weakened, causing delayed growth and pain, especially in the pelvis, spine, and legs. Victims of severe rickets will experience a distortion of the bones with bowed legs and possibly a curved spine as the result. Preventing rickets is why we add vitamin D to cow's milk. 
Interestingly, the primary source of vitamin D in humans comes from a chemical interaction with a person's skin and the sun, which of course severed workers never get to see. Second row, cell one, prominent wax bulge. This sounds like a cure thing. Cell two in the second row, erection used in the construction sense. Are you seeing a theme? It's pretty obvious Dylan put this together. Cell three, lumen referred to as she. Herb does this one a lot. And the fourth cell is a gimme, nine core values listed. Moving to the third row, cell one, another gimme, the four tempers referenced. Cell two is in quotes, lumen will save the world. Cell three, unexplained Egan death, like every CEO. Cell four, lock of old hair. The fourth row, cell one, an Egan depicted with a halo. Cell two, dueling. Cell three, goodliness is referenced. And finally, in the fourth cell on row four, passive aggressive shit talking of Ambrose. Ambrose, as we mentioned, was the shortest-serving Lumen CEO, or so we think. It's generally accepted Ambrose took over after Kira in 1939 and only served for two years. There's some scandals surrounding Ambrose, but we aren't sure exactly what just yet. Oh, and although it sounds made up, goodliness is actually a word. It has biblical roots. Goodliness can be found in the Bible in the book of Isaiah. Goodliness means you have the quality of being goodly. Being goodly means you possess pleasing grace, beauty, or elegance. Possessing the most goodly makes you, no joke, the goodliest. Mark is feeling a little guilty about playing Egan Bingo, now that he's department chief and all. Dylan sees it differently. And come on, it'll be an excellent opportunity for everyone except Herb to bond. The refiners are approaching a crossroads in the hallway. Irv and Bert from O&D almost run into each other at the corner. This sets up one of the most iconic shots of the entire series. This is the corner meeting of the two departments. The long shot is a forced perspective with a very wide-angle lens. Coming into the intersection from the upper left is the four-member MDR team. Coming from the upper right is the two-person O&D team. The angled face-off is visually unique and oddly hilarious. They all freeze at the corner. Mark speaks first. Optics and design. There is immediate tension. Bert and Irv do acknowledge each other. I trust the session was good. Great. Very restorative. Mark is shocked they know each other. Irv says they met admiring some Lumen artwork together. Bert reminds Irv about those new totes. Dylan, no surprise, is combative on site. Thanks for the tip. You got some business? Okay. You can stop for a fucking stroll. Dylan. What? Just, I just, I think you guys are cool, and I'm just wondering what you're up to. It's rare seeing you out of your hole. The older woman following Bert is carrying a tray with a mess on it. We'll find out her character name is Felicia. She answers Dylan with some irritation. Egg drop challenge in the team building space. Tight department like us gotta keep our synergy up. Egg drop challenge. You buy this fucking shit? Her claim is backed up by the tray filled with cracked and runny eggs mixed in with various building materials like tongue depressors and soda straws. She doesn't say who was participating in the challenge. Dylan's not buying it. He thinks it's a setup even with the tray of broken eggs. 
Felicia is feisty. She gives it right back to Dylan. And what are you guys doing? Bert Sculter. He doesn't want to stir things up anymore. Mark answers. Perpetuity wing visit. Uh, this is Heli, our new refiner. O&D welcomes Heli. Bert says they should be getting back to the O&D offices. Can't leave the nest empty. Dylan can't help but get in one more shot as O&D continues down the hall. Those eggs look like shit. Felicia shoots him a hateful look over her shoulder, but doesn't say anything. As MDR continues on, Irv pauses with a long and lingering look in the direction of Bert and the retreating O&D department. Felicia is being played by Claudia Robinson. Claudia is an American actress with 29 IMDb profile credits dating back to a 1976 movie about the downside of Jamaican tourism. Her career really got going in 1982, She's done numerous guest star roles in hour-long TV series with a few movies thrown in. Claudia is still busy with four total appearances in 2022, including this five-episode appearance on Severance. Tight department like us got to keep our synergy up. As O&D heads back to the nest, let's pause to dig into a couple of things here. First, the egg drop challenge. You may have heard of one of these. It's been a perennial part of engineering curriculums throughout the U.S. for at least a couple of generations. No one's exactly sure who held the very first egg drop challenge. Many university engineering departments throughout the U.S. host annual egg drops during engineering week, the last week of February. The challenge could include using only a prescribed set of materials, like everybody gets an egg drop kit, or some challenges allow any materials you can get your hands on. The rig you create might be limited by size or weight. Normally, parachutes aren't allowed, but most any other design is fair game. Some designs try to slow the descent of the egg. Others try to cushion the impact. The exercise teaches Newtonian physics along with effective design. The other thing we need to discuss is Herb's infatuation with Bert. Could this really have developed in one chance meeting for a few minutes outside of wellness? A lot of severance conspiracy theorists don't think so. This is a deep connection Irv feels for Bert. In the final episode, we will see a control panel that appears to include several different settings for the severance chip. One of them indicates there might be a reset, an option to wipe out all severed memories so the severed worker can start over on the severed floor, not knowing they'd ever been there before. You remember during the Get Acquainted game, Irv said he'd only been at Lumen for three years? This seems like a very short time for someone as knowledgeable about Lumen and Kier as Irv. We know from Herb's LinkedIn bio, he's worked at Lumen for nine total years. The theory says it's only been three years since his last reset. Before that, it's possible Herb may have worked in O&D. He is a painter as an Audi, after all. Irv may have painted some of the paintings he now admires. The theory says Irv and Bert's relationship developed while Irv was working in O&D. The feelings they had for each other became so apparent and so much of a distraction the powers that be on the severed floor noticed. They decided to reset Irv and move him to a different department. It's the lingering institutional memories of this past relationship which are driving Irv's strong feelings now. Bert does not seem to have been reset because he does have long-term memories about his department. 
Is he pretending to just be meeting Irv for the first time? Or is it possible this one relationship was wiped from his memory? Okay, let's continue. We really need to get to perpetuity. Irving, come on. The gang continues on. While they walk, let's bop over to Cobell's office for a quick meeting. Cobell comes into her outer office looking for Milchik. He's not there. She opens her inner office door to find both Milchik and Natalie waiting for her. This is Natalie, who we saw on the news last night. Milchik is setting up one of the tiny desktop audio monitors. Natalie! Harmony, hello. Milchik looks like he's been caught doing something wrong. Cobell asks if this is about Helena. She's referring to Helly. This is the first time we've heard her called by her full name. Natalie says, no, this is about Peter Kilmer. Who? Oh, that's right, Petey. Little did Harmony know, she was about four feet from Peter Kilmer earlier this morning. Through a huge smile, Natalie adds... And I should tell you that the board is joining us. The smiling but slightly sinister Natalie is being played by Sidney Cole Alexander. Sidney is another standout of the stage who is taking some time out from her numerous theater commitments to do a little TV acting. Sidney only has eight performer credits on her IMDb profile, and four of those are shorts. We will be seeing Natalie on four total episodes of Severance this season. No word yet on whether Natalie will be returning in the second season. Natalie wears the same dark and stark black and white clothing palette we find with both Grainer and Milchik. She wears the Lumen water drop pin like Ms. Casey. Also, like Ms. Casey, Natalie does not seem to carry a key card. Even with these cues, it doesn't look like Natalie is a part-time employee. She was on the TV news debating the severance procedure. We will also see her in the Upworld during the season one finale. She introduces Helena Egan for her big coming out as a severed employee. Milchik finishes hooking up the monitor and leaves the room without a word. He does shoot a look at Cobell. Out of concern, we get the feeling this isn't the kind of meeting you want to be ambushed with. Cobell sits in front of the softly sighing monitor speaker. The smiling Natalie waits a few beats, then says... Ford would like you to speak first. Oh, yes. Cobell starts talking to the speaker. Salutations. The silence is compelling. Cobell glances back at Natalie, who gives her a nod to keep going. So the search for Kilmer continues. There's a soft burst of static. Cobell looks to Natalie, who's still giving her a halfway smile. The board seems to want more. I will say this, not to be alarmist. But prior to his departure, there were some troubling signs of possible reintegration. This sparked some urgent but barely audible voices. The voice or voices may be male, but the sounds are far too distant and garbled to be sure. Natalie is wearing what looks to be a Plantronics Legend Bluetooth headset, although it's probably a Lumen product. She seems to be hearing the board's conversation through the headset. Natalie listens for a few moments, then says, okay. So the board is conveying pretty strongly that the severance procedure is provenly irreversible. Yes. And that this knowledge should be a given for a person managing a severed floor. Uh, the board can think this all they want. It sounds like they would be very interested to meet the folks who worked on Petey. Natalie also reminds Cobell MDR needs to get their numbers up by the end of the quarter in just three weeks. 
Gobel has her answer ready for this one, even if it is a huge lie. We are quickly rekindling our yield down here with our nimble new refiner. Gobel seems ready to heap some unearned praise on Heli. And for what it's worth, the board has concluded the call. Wow, the board couldn't care less. They basically hung up on Cobell. Natalie is all smiles and decorum, but you can tell she thinks she's slumming with these grunts down here on the severed floor. The sooner she gets out of here, the better. Cobell starts to ask something, but Natalie cuts her off with a jaunty... Goodbye, Harmony. You can tell from Cobell's expression this did not go well. You also get the feeling she'd like to plant a fist in the middle of Natalie's enormous Cheshire grin. The board is joining us. So who is the board? Well, this is another one of those huge mysteries at Lumen. After this session, it would seem somebody who at least can speak is on the other end of the line. After they did not contribute vocally to the meeting with Mark, we weren't sure. This might be Jame and a few of his advisors. There is also the theory the board is made up of the past CEOs of Lumen. Is it possible these long-dead CEOs are communicating either from the afterlife or from some reanimation area where they've been brought back from the dead? Hopefully, we'll be getting more answers about the nature of the board in Season 2. Board has concluded the call. We catch back up with the gang from MDR as they continue to perpetuity. This trek is incredibly long, and look at the hallway fading to a point off in the distance. Just how massive is this severed floor? Heli is asking about O&D. They're seriously a two-person department, like they only ever see each other? Herb says it must be lonely. Dylan can't contain his hatred, but Mark says O&D is nice. This sets Dylan off. He says O&D doesn't share the same values as MDR. Surprisingly, we get some lore of Kier from Dylan. Kier sorted the departments by virtue. Macrodats are clever and true, while OND's more cruelty centered. Um, macrodats? Ellie wants to know how many departments there are on the severed floor. The responses are varied. Probably 30. No one's quite sure. This is where we learn about the source of Dylan's deep-seated hatred for O&D. O&D tried a violent coup on the others decades ago, and that's why they reduced them down to two, and that's why they keep us all so far apart now. Wow, a coup? Really? According to Irv, no, Dylan's story is a complete fiction. Helly wants to know if anyone was killed. Nope. There was no coup. No one killed anyone. Mark sounds very certain of himself, but Heli still wonders... Then why don't we ever hang out? I mean, I'm 99% sure there was no coup. Heli launches into a bloody but somehow cute story about O&D attacking them. If attacked, she thinks they should kill Mark to let everyone know this group of macrodets is crazy and they have nothing to lose. Smart. That's smart. Like I'm imagining them rounding a corner and we're all blood-soaked and I'm wearing your face. And they're like, whose face is that? And I'm like, the last person who fucked with us. And that's just feeling like a really powerful image to me. Just seems like they'd recognize my face. Maybe if you wore it inside out. This is cute and funny and relaxed. And it has the same kind of quirky humor we heard in the Mark and Petey flashback. Helly smiles somewhat coyly at Mark, and... We're here. The hallway ends at a door. The tiny sign, in keeping with every other tiny sign we've seen on the floor, is to the left of the door, just below eye level. It says, Perpetuity Wing. Get ready, fellow macrodats. Walking through that door is a wild ride.
We reverse angle on the door as Irv leads the way through. He is looking ahead with glowing reverence. Then there's a reverse angle revealing the entryway of the perpetuity wing. We see a life-sized wax figure of a severe-looking man with white hair standing on a pedestal in the center of the room. He is in a blue suit of an older style. He is flanked on either side by, quote, setting concrete. To our left is the rather indelicate quote, the remembered man does not decay. This one is attributed to Keir Egan. On the other side, it says, history lives in us, whether we learn it or not. This one is attributed to current CEO, James Egan. Irv seems to be quoting from the handbook, reverently. Come now, children of my industry, and know the children of my blood. He doesn't say, but I don't think this is a James quote. I think it's a Keir quote. The language sounds too old. Irv then tells us this statue is of current CEO James Egan. And it is James without the S. Remarkable man. Dylan thinks he's pretty good looking, too. See those brows? There's a pretty fantastic little bit of a visual cue in this scene. We know now, after watching the whole season, Helly is now looking at a statue of either her dad or her grandfather. We do Don't know it here in the middle of episode three, but we're getting a lot of hints. Watch how this group disassembles. Dylan makes the comment about the brows, so we're thinking brows as director Stiller holds on the shot. Irv and Dylan step out. Then Mark steps out. We are left with Helly alone in the shot for just a second or two. Britt Lauer has some pretty spectacular brows herself and they may even be accentuating them. The family resemblance is certainly there and being pointed out to us, especially now that we know to be looking for it. I also want to throw in a theory about the perpetuity wing. I think it was built by James. It appears James took over as CEO somewhere between 2003 and 2008. The advances in severance and the widespread use of the severance chip have really only happened in about the last 15 to 20 years. The quote Irv gave us when he entered is the historical and philosophical basis for supporting a project like the Perpetuity Wing. This is the place where Kier's children of his industry, meaning the Lumen workers, meet the children of his blood, his actual family. By the way, when you think about it, Isn't it a little creepy to refer to your employees as your children? Maybe that was more acceptable back in the 1860s. I believe James took that quote from the handbook and interpreted it to mean, what better way to meet the family than through a museum? This would explain why James is the statue greeting you. And there is a quote from James set in the cement of the entryway. These statues we'll see in the next room are too symmetrical. The room of past CEOs was designed and laid out the way we see it. I'm pretty sure they didn't move Leonora's statue in there from the entryway when James took over. James built this place. He needed a temple where his severed workers could worship and learn about their god, Kier Egan. As the gang starts to move, Heli walks slowly around the statue of James Egan, giving it a long look. Is there maybe some flicker of recognition? We hold on James' quote for a second before the cut. 
Now we're on a balcony looking down at seven more wax figures on pedestals, much like the one we saw of Jame in the welcome area. There are five men and two women. The statue in the center is Kier. The other statues are arranged around the room, so they are all looking in towards Kier. If you start in the lower left from the perspective on the balcony, they go around the room clockwise in order. The guy with the dark hair and bald on top is Ambrose, the shortest serving CEO, and according to Irv, unfairly maligned as a black sheep in the annals of the family. Next to Ambrose is Myrtle, the first female CEO. Baird is in the blue suit to the left of the large passageway, and Gerhardt is to the right. Facing Myrtle across the way is Philip Pip Egan, and directly across the room from Ambrose is Lenora Egan. She's the second female CEO and the CEO to immediately precede James. We, as the viewer, are allowed to see a total of five CEO plaques while visiting. Kier, Myrtle, Baird, Gerhardt, and Pip. That means these are the only CEOs where we have definite dates. We don't get to see date information about Ambrose, Leonora, or Jame. It's pretty widely accepted Ambrose served as CEO in the two-year span between Kier and Myrtle. So we've got fairly solid service dates on Ambrose, but we don't know birth or death dates. Now, if Ambrose follows suit with most CEOs, 1941 would also be his death date. Not having solid date info on Jame and Leonora, the two most recent CEOs, leaves us hanging as the viewer. I think this is intentional. Something's going on, and knowing these dates would tip us off. Without this info, we have question marks about when James took over, his age, and what exactly happened to Leonora. The James statue is pretty physically accurate. James is old. I think there must be an interesting story surrounding Leonora. We don't get to see Leonora's CEO plaque in the perpetuity wing, so there's conflicting information out there about her birth and death years, as well as her stint as CEO. Based on the info I've found, regardless of specific dates, Leonora breaks the mold as a Lumen CEO in a couple of big ways. As with most Lumen CEOs, Leonora seems to have filled the role up until her death. Now, it is also possible she lived a couple of years past her time as CEO, since those dates are still kind of fluid. What's unusual about Leonora is her age. Kier was 98 when he died. Most of the other Lumen CEOs have lived into their 70s. Leonora was somewhere between 48 and 50 years old when she died and James took over. We don't know how James is related to Leonora, but it's possible he's much older. Some theorists put James at 81 when he took over in 2008. This would make him more of a contemporary of Gerhard and Pip than of Leonora. Leonora was also the youngest CEO aside from Kier. He was only 24 when he founded the company. Leonora assumed the helm at about age 40. Pip was the next youngest CEO at 50, and the rest were between 54 and 57 when they took over. I really hope this is setting us up for some backstory on Leonora in the second season. My theory? She was the young, hip, social media-savvy CEO who loved the limelight. She was becoming the face of the company at the turn of the 21st century and an embarrassment to the very conservative Lumen establishment. 
She was, alas, tragically killed in a horrible car accident under mysterious circumstances. Hey, according to the Lexington letter, Lumen knows car accidents. Leonora's uncle, James, who had been working on developing Severance, stepped in and got himself voted by the board as CEO, even though he was in his 80s. Okay, enough with my story pitch. Let's get back to the wing of perpetuity. The museum keeps going. Irv tells us these center displays are for the other CEOs. But the whole back part is key. There's a cut to Petey wandering along a rural road, still wearing nothing but Rickon's robe. The soundtrack over this segment is a voice. It's very old and frail sounding, coming through a cheap speaker. In my life, I have identified four components, which I call tempers. This is the voice of Keir Egan. Now, since Keir died in 1939, this might be an actual recording rather than a recreation. For realsies, this is the voice of American actor Mark Geller. Yes, everyone in this cast seems to be named Mark, and the guy whose real name is Adam has the character name of Mark. This Mark was born in Providence, Rhode Island in July of 1959. He portrays both the voice and visual presence of Keir Egan. He's got a great creepy vibe, too. Mark is also a stage actor who happened to do a little TV. He has 22 IMDb credits for appearing in shorts and guest starring on single episodes of TV. He also has an extensive list of stage credits. Anytime you hear or see Kier, it's Mark. As Kier drones on about taming the tempers, Petey is having a rough go of it out on the road. Oh, hey, somebody better mark their bingo card. Whoa. Frolic. Dread. Malice. The four tempers have been named. There are a couple of great theories out there about the four tempers. The first compares them to the four bodily humors. Cures theorizing may be cribbed from Greek physician Hippocrates. You know, the guy who the oath is named after. He identified what he called the four bodily humors. The various balances of these four humors could affect the health and well-being of the body. The four humors were blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. When the humors were in balance, you were healthy. The other great tempers theory is that the four MDR workers now represent the four tempers. Mark is woe and constant sorrow about his wife. Dylan is frolic, mischievous, having fun. Irving is dread, following every rule to the nth degree and afraid of his own shadow. Helly becomes malice, constantly trying to defeat the code detectors, smashing windows, cutting herself. She is truly malicious. As the refiners wander about the statues, Baird's bright blue suit and Myrtle's bright red outfit create some great red-blue frames. Helly sets off the Myrtle speech. A compact of values that we have long held as precious in which I do believe will one day save this world. Ellie takes out her Egan bingo card and crosses off Save the World. Mark sees her playing. Oh, look, he got one. Herb comes up behind them, greatly misreading the room. Herb says to cry if you need to. It's okay. Herb tells the story of Myrtle saying, as a child, how she someday would be CEO. Isn't that lovely? It's beautiful. It almost makes me wish I remembered my own childhood. Irv peels Helly away from Mark, walking her across the room of CEOs. He tells her not having a history is unnatural. 
This is why she should use this history. Become a part of the history of Lumen. This seems to be Herb's approach. As they walk, Helly passes in front of the statue of Leonora. She pauses right in front of her. Helly even holds her head at the exact same angle as Leonora. Check it out. It's another clue. The nose, the mouth, the features are all very similar. So could Leonora be Helly's mother? With James then as possibly Leonora's father, which would make him grandfather to Helly. James was maybe passed over for CEO when it would have been his normal time. Could he have used Leonora's untimely death as a way to grab his time at the top? There's also a fringe theory about old brains being put into new bodies to keep the same group of CEOs in power throughout the ages. This sounds a little out there, but not that much when you consider there is a dedicated room in the office where they are jamming hardware into employees' brains. These people own a cranial drill and have a full-fledged operating room. Swapping brains might not be that big a leap. Irv has walked Helly into what is officially known as the Lumen Legacy of Joy. To Dylan, it's the mouth wall. They're standing in front of a wall of video monitors three rows high and stretching the length of the room. Every monitor shows a close-up of a smiling mouth. Each of these is a real smile from someone on the outside. Someone Lumen Industries has helped. A few of these people need a better dental plan. Mark has wandered in behind them. And they rotate these through. The true number of smiles may well be in the millions. Helly takes the whole thing literally. So what are we, like a dental company? No. Mark and Irv both tell her, no, it's symbolic. She's a part of a history, a noble history, blah, blah. Check the bingo card. This is about the time Dylan arrives. They update the mouth wall? Irv coldly corrects him. It's not called the mouth wall. Leave it to Dylan to take all the pomp out of Irv's sails. Damn, they took down the chick I like. Dylan's ready to go. This trip is pulling him away from the Tumwater file. Irv snaps, they just got there. She hasn't even seen the Kia part yet. The large opening between Baird and Gerhardt is the passage back to the Kier area. Irv kind of sneers Gerhardt's name as he passes by, which makes me wonder if there's a story there, too. There is a reverse angle into the back room of the perpetuity wing. It holds a house. This is a stunning display. Jesus. No. Kia. It's his house? A perfect replica. Pretty cool, huh? The refiners are walking into what looks like a large front yard with a house sitting entirely inside a building. There are bushes and grass and trees and the front of a large mid-19th century home. Where they're shooting this is unclear, and I think this exterior scene, at least, is primarily CGI. According to production designer Jeremy Hindle, this was too big a set to create from scratch at the studios. He said they found a museum in the Bronx with a pristine house attached to it. But maybe not. This shot of the exterior looks exactly like the artist's rendering of the Hudson River Museum in Yonkers. It's a proposed display for their 1877 Glenview house. 
This scene might even be a CGI rendering of the Glenview House architect's drawing. It's almost identical. The Glenview House doesn't appear to actually be inside another building. This building-in-a-building type of display is reminiscent of displays at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois. In Lincoln's museum, you are greeted by a stunning recreation of the exterior of the White House just as you step inside the museum. The gang pauses to take it in. Innies have never seen a house, a yard, a street. This is all entirely new information for them. They walk through the yard and into the house in one fixed shot, so what we're looking at is probably a lot of CGI. The home Hindle was referencing may be what they're using for the interiors of Kier's home. The MDR crew enters the main hall of Kier's recreated home. We get some detailed close-ups like Kier's very funky-looking slippers. A small sign on the bed says, Do not lie in Kier Egan's bed. The bedroom of Kier just as he might have left it. Yeah, probably without the sign on the bed. Dylan checks out a bust of Kier and shoots more holes in Irving's pompous sails. I hate this place. It smells like 19th century ass. Irv, of course, jumps all over him for being so crass. That's not fair. Up till now, I've been reverent as shit. Mark has wandered over near the founder's bed, possibly a bit too close for Irv's comfort. Mark? Yeah? Were you about to... As Irv crosses to the bed, Heli moves to the back wall of the room. No. Hmm? Uh-uh. As Irv approaches, he sees the bingo card in Mark's pocket. Oh, God, Mark. Still. Irv lays into Mark. He still thinks this place is going to somehow get through to Heli if only Mark wouldn't pervert the message with jokes. It's the perpetuity wing. It's the living soul of Lumen. And everything she stands for, not a bingo match. As they're arguing, Mark realizes Heli is gone. We cut to Heli running through the white walls of the severed floor. Amazingly, she seems to know where she's going and at a full run. Mark realizes what's happening and now he's in hot pursuit. Running through the halls is Keystone Cops level crazy with shaky handheld cameras and cuts back and forth from Mark to Heli. In the midst of the chaos, there's a calming cut to Milchik. He's still sitting in the conference room, quietly reading Rickon's book. He seems a bit stunned by what he's reading. Jesus. He doesn't have a clue. Two of his refiners are at this moment racing through the halls. Heli ran directly to the barrier door at the stairwell. She hits the trouble bar, but the door is locked. Well, of course it is. Milchik isn't waiting on the other side to meet her. There's a fire extinguisher at the tea in the hall. Heli grabs it and uses it to break through the tiny reinforced window in the locked door. It takes several shots, but she's able to smash out the glass. As soon as we hear glass breaking, alarms start to go off throughout the hallways. The fluorescents turn red and start a sweeping effect. Milchik reacts immediately, laying Rickon's book face up in the chair where he was sitting before running out into the hall. As Milchik runs out of the conference room, we need to pause for a fun bit of info. We've been in this conference room before. In a Vulture article, Ben Stiller said, This is the same conference room where we saw the birth of Helly's Innie. 
He said they repurposed it in an old-school Star Trek sort of way by taking out one of the solid walls and replacing it with glass. The reference is about the original Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. Star Trek was notorious for reusing crew cabins, conference rooms, and hallways to fill in for different parts of the ship and even other starships. In one of Star Trek's most hilarious reuses of a set, they redressed the exteriors from Andy Griffith's Mayberry to use in two different episodes. In the background of some scenes of the popular City on the Edge of Forever, you can actually see the sign for Floyd's Barbershop. Kelly has smashed most of the glass out of the window. We can hear Mark shouting her name in the distance. She's written, never come back here on the back of the Egan bingo card. She has one arm stuck through the smashed out window. She seems to be trying to get her head far enough through the opening to activate the chip. She wants her Audi to see this message. The chip doesn't kick in, probably because the door wasn't opened. Mark grabs her around the waist and pulls her back into the severed hallway. Her arm is raked across the jagged edges of glass as she's yanked back through. Mark and Helly hit the floor. The music crescendos. But the alarm continues. In the distance, we see Grainer. He activates his magical remote, and the alarms stop. The hallway is still bathed in red light, but it's no longer flashing. Mark stands silently. He knows he can't talk her out of this mess. It's just too much. This way, please, Hellier. Mark and Helly exchange a look as they both stand. She's mad he stopped her. He's mad she even tried this in the first place. Mark is left standing in the hallway by the broken window as Helly follows Grainer. We cut to inside the break room hallway. We were here before with Mark. Grainer steps away from the door. On you go. Helly begins the trek down the narrow and dimly lit hallway. The door clicks behind her. She's still holding her bleeding arm. At the end of the hall, she enters the same door where Mark saw Cobell. Milchik is waiting in the room for her. I'm truly sorry to see you here, Helly. He sits Helly down and begins to bandage her arm. Milchik's mood is somber. Helly tries to appeal to his common sense. Look, you seem like a smart person. Don't you see how fucked up this is? Milchik shuts her down. This is not the time. He tells her to sit. Hands on the table, please. Helly sits at the end of a very specialized table. At her end, there are impressions of hands in the tabletop. She slides her hands into them. There is a large glass partition about three feet in front of Helly and maybe five feet away from Milchik. A reflecting projector, like the overhead projectors they used to have in schools, is mounted at Milchik's end of the table. Seth goes to a small three-drawer cabinet sitting on a side table. He selects a clear sheet of film from the bottom drawer. This sheet of film contains the words to the compunction statement we heard Mark reciting on Petey's tape. The three-drawer cabinet would indicate the compunction statement is just one of the many and interesting transparencies Seth could select for a break room session, all depending, I'm sure, on the infraction. Milchik puts on 80s-era foam cup headphones and plugs his single quarter-inch plug into a jack. There's a close-up of a microcassette preparing to record the session. This would explain where Petey's tape of Mark's session came from, just not how he got it. 
I'm bringing up the compunction statement for Heli R. A bright light causes Heli to recoil. It's shining directly in her eyes right through the glass partition. After Heli takes a moment to focus, she realizes there are now words on the glass partition. This is basically how a teleprompter works through a TV camera. The words are a reflection on a panel of glass in front of the camera lens. Heli looks at the words. What is this? Read it. Heli reads the first few lines of the statement silently. I don't want to. This is not an option. Heli decides not to test Milchik and begins to read. Forgive me for the harm I have caused this world. As she's reading through the statement, we see Milchik adjusting a thumb wheel. There is a close-up of a paper feed and what looks like the sensing needle of a lie detector. After she's read through the statement, Milchik tells her she doesn't mean it. He's seeing something in the readouts. He tells her to read it again. She does with a bit more conviction. Nope, she still doesn't mean it. Heli realizes what's happening when Milchik tells her to begin a third time. Really? Now that we're finally here, let's talk a minute about the break room. Break is a fun little play on words. The break room is designed to break the spirit of the severed employees. In addition to whatever is happening with the refined numbers, the severed employees are also being indoctrinated into the cult of Kier. This is part of it. Reciting this very demeaning statement over and over can take an emotional toll. Breaking the severed employees, then bringing them into the camp of Kier is a pretty standard cult move. Really? Repetition like this is a form of psychological and emotional torture. The key is it's not physical torture. The handlers on the severed floor can mess with the heads of severed employees all they want. When the chip switches them off, there's no physical damage, even though they may have been forced to repeat the compunction statement nonstop for the last eight hours. The severed handlers can't do anything physical to the bodies of the severed workers because the body is a shared space. As we saw with Mark's Band-Aid right there in the first episode, anything that happens physically to the innie on the severed floor has to be explained to the Audi. In the Lexington letter, after Peg's innie started to rebel, there were indications the punishment happening on the severed floor was getting worse each shift. Once, Audi Peg said her hair was soaking wet when she got off the elevator. She was told it was some kind of accident with a water cooler bottle. In reality, they may have been waterboarding Peggy right up until the moment she was put on the elevator. As soon as the elevator door opens for a new day, she's shoved right back into the torture with no let-up. As horrible as waterboarding is, it does not leave marks. I do wonder what effect running one of these sessions has on the handlers. Somebody has to be sitting at the other end of the table saying again over and over. Again, please. They have to be switching out, taking shifts, or it's going to mess with their heads, too. We leave Heli in the break room and cut to Mark, now seated at his workstation. Dylan comes through the space. Fun day. He says he'll see Mark tomorrow. Mark tells him to go ahead and flip off the lights. As he's sitting there, Mark realizes he's forgotten something. He gets out the green envelope with the new pictures and starts to swap them in the old frames. There's a bit of a time lapse, but for some reason, we get to experience Mark changing all four of the pictures. 
When he pulls the frame back from the fourth and final picture, we see what is immediately recognizable as Petey's map. Audi Mark saw it in the abandoned nursery. Any Mark is now seeing it for the first time. He slowly moves the picture back to reveal the entire map. There has been much discussion about Petey's map. We can see wellness in the upper left-hand corner. There's an oval with the word mind in it, then a black blotch. I think this means something like a mind wipe. There are three small house icons and the notation, some people might live here on the far right of the map. The break room is labeled. We can see the perpetuity wing at the very bottom center. Just outside the perpetuity wing is something labeled the coil dot 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 of doom. Team building is in the lower right corner of the map. O and D seems to be opposite in a circle in the lower left corner. O and D isn't connected to anything by hallways. There are numerous question marks and several things appear to be scratched out. The hallways don't all line up, but this does give us a sense of the layout of the floor. When Mark realizes what it is, he looks over his shoulder to make sure no one is near. The MDR space is still dark and empty. Smash cut to a hand on his soda machine. It's Petey. He's finally made it to a convenience store, but he's not looking good. He's been out on the road for at least five or six hours. He starts to babble. He doesn't have any tokens. Hey! I need tokens so I can eat! His bloody nose has left a red ring around his mouth and stained his white beard. It looks horrible as he turns and slides down the front of the cooler door. Oh my god. Mark is leaving the dark and seemingly abandoned lumen. No surprise, it's raining. Isn't it always raining in Kier? The parking lot is almost deserted, but as usual, there are still one or two cars scattered about as Mark leaves. Cut to Mark going down into his darkened basement. Petey? No answer. Mark hops into his car, heading out to look for the wayward Petey. An ambulance crosses his path at the intersection. He decides to follow it. The lights are flashing outside the gas station where we last saw Petey. Mark gets out of his car. He can see Petey being helped out of the station by the EMTs. He's shaky, but he is walking under his own power. Mark stays in the shadows watching. The EMTs are chattering, talking about getting an ID on this guy. One of them heads to get the gurney. Petey gets a horrible look in his eye and collapses in the parking lot. The gas station where they're shooting these scenes is a real place. It's the Nyack Service Center, located at the corner of Route 9 West and Christian Herald Road in Nyack, New York. The Nyack Service Center could have its own page on IMDb. It also appeared as a location in the movie John Wick Chapter 1. Nyack, New York sits on the Hudson River due north of Manhattan. The Nyack Service Center is about 70 miles from the Bell Labs facility in Homedale. It's also just a couple miles from the Village Gate townhouses. They're the stand-in for Baird Creek Manor, where Mark lives. We hear the EMTs say Petey's not breathing. Mark gets a concerned look on his face, but instead of going over, he gets back in his car. He heads to his house and goes directly to the basement. He's worried he might be caught. He rolls up the sleeping bag and shoves it back in its crate. He covers the couch with a tarp and sets storage boxes along it. It looks like it hasn't been disturbed in a long time, but it looks very different than what Cobell saw earlier today. Mark is heading out of the basement. The lights are off when he hears a buzzing. 
It's the flip phone Petey had been carrying but dropped earlier during his hallucination. Someone is calling Petey. The phone keeps buzzing as the credits roll. There you have it, Macro Data Refiners, and congratulations. This file is now at 100%. Before you go, I would like to share some facts about your Audi with you. Your Audi enjoys pancakes. Your Audi was once in the audience at a very funny play. Your Audi knows how to program a VCR. Please try to enjoy each of these facts about your Audi equally. The next time we gather refiners, get ready for some navel-gazing, we will be delving into the you you are. For now, please leave by the elevator, and as always, make sure to stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate Severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts. 